My guest today has lived through every parent's worst nightmare. After sustained bullying at school, Suzanne Alderson's daughter Izzy revealed that she was planning to take her own life. She was just 14. Suzanne ended up on suicide watch, sitting next to her teenager through the night, just keeping her alive. In one of her darkest moments, she decided she never wanted another parent to feel quite as alone as she did right then. As Izzy's mental health thankfully began to improve, the Solihull mom set up a Facebook group called Parenting Mental Health, enabling families to share their questions and experiences in a safe space. Welcome back to Brummy Mummies. My name is Zoe Chamberlain. I'm a journalist, author and mum. I launched Brummy Mummies as a community for families to share with you stories from the most inspiring mums and dads to help you find out how they juggle family life and everything that comes with it. Parenting Mental Health is now a charity that has helped more than 37,000 families. Let's get straight into talking to Suzanne about the signs parents should look out for and how to help not only a child, but a whole family through a mental health crisis. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you for coming onto the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Zoe. Lovely to be here. So tell me about what happened to your daughter, Izzy. Um, I know she was 14. How did that, what happened and how did that kind of inspire you to set up parenting mental health? So in 2015, as you say, Izzy was 14 and she was being really badly bullied at school and it had a huge impact on her mental health. But I think we just, when I say we, I mean I, uh, just thought that if we could get through it, if we could just carry on, it would all be okay. It would just sort of disappear. Um, But what we saw was that she started to withdraw from us. So we started to see a change in her. All the things that we love about Izzy or loved then and still love now, her creativity, her effervescence, her humour, that all just started to change. And we started to lose sight of her. So I decided that I was going to go and speak to the school. And I spoke to her about it and said, I'm going to go in and talk to them. And she said, you can't, mum, because you know, I'm never going to trust you if you go and talk to them. So we spent another sort of month or two trying to find a way that we could communicate with the school what was going on to try and make some changes. And in the end, my husband went and spoke to them and they said that they would move the bullies from her class. And we were just going into the summer holidays. So we all sort of left that meeting and looked at the towards the summer holidays with this real sense of optimism. And I can remember her in the September saying to me, you know, mum, I've got this. And I can almost see her now in my car sitting there, you know, like with her fists clenched, thinking that she was going to go into this new term with a whole new approach and a new opportunity. And later that day, I got a phone call from her, which was probably the most distressed I've ever heard her screaming down the phone at me. They're in my class. They're in my class. And the school had forgotten to move the bullies and they'd actually seated them either side of her. And that was really the start of a very, very fast and sharp decline in her mental health. And so within a few days, she couldn't leave the house. She wasn't eating. She'd stop sleeping and we'd hear her sort of padding around upstairs at all times of day and night. And so I took her to see our GP. And he referred her to CAMS, which is the Child Adolescent Mental Health Service, with about a nine to 12 week waiting list, which I think now would be just remarkable to get seen in that timescale. But at the time for me, just felt completely unrealistic. And I had no idea how I was going to get through it. 
So my doctor said, come back next week and I'll see you every week until the referral comes through. And the following week we went along and Izzy said to me, mum, is it okay if I go in on my own? Which was a little bit unusual, but I sort of said, yeah, okay, that's fine. And sat in the waiting room waiting to hear what was going to happen when she came out. And the doctor brought her out and said, would you just go home? I'm going to give you a ring. How long does it take you to get home? It was about 10 minutes. And we were in silence in the car on the way back. And I simply didn't have any idea what he was going to say to me. And the phone call, I can still remember feeling the grain of the bookshelf I was holding onto when I picked the phone up. And he said, um, Izzy has a plan to end her life this evening. She's stockpiled pills. Um, you need to keep an eye on her. You need to keep, you need to be with her. And I'm going to refer her to CAMS. We'll get her seen. If, if not today, then first thing in the morning. And so that phone call really changed the whole trajectory of our life. So Izzy was seen the next day by CAMS, wrapped in amazingly brilliant care, uh, put on medication for antidepressants um, and put on a pathway of, of psychological, emotional, I mean, therapeutic support. But for us as parents, we were completely set adrift. We didn't know how to deal with this because you don't ever think that your child is going to want to end their life at 14 years old. It's not one of those, you know, signposts on that great parenting highway that says you're doing a brilliant job. So you don't actually know how you're going to react to it and you don't know how you're going to respond to it because you just, you have the fear that that might happen. You see it happening in the media and, you know, you see stories, but you just never believe it's going to happen in your own home. And I remember sitting on her floor at... 3am, which I think is probably the loneliest time of night, thinking to myself, I can't be the only person doing this. I can't be the only person sitting on the floor of their teenager's bedroom, just making sure that they remain alive. And so I think something in me just clicked then. And I decided that if we made it through, which I'm absolutely delighted to say that we did, uh, with lots of fits and starts and stumbles and, you know, twists and turns. Um, but I'd make it my mission to make sure that no other parent felt like I did, which was completely isolated because friends and family didn't get it. They had no frame of reference. I felt really ashamed as well because good parents don't have children who self-harm or attempt suicide or become depressed. And I also felt really ill-equipped to deal with it. And so Parenting Mental Health started as a Facebook group about nine months after Izzy's first suicide attempt. And it wasn't that day when we came back from the doctor, but um, she went on to attempt suicide and uh, self-harm. And I set up a Facebook group because I figured it was the easiest way to get to parents who might be looking like I was for a safe haven, somewhere that was judgment free and to get some understanding and go through this uh, with other people who who got it. And so that was in 2016. And we now support around 37,000 parents in our peer support community on Facebook. And we uh, became a registered charity in 2020. And Penguin published my book, Never Let Go, How to Parent Your Child Through Mental Illness, in 2020 as well. So we've come a long way since then, as has Izzy. Um, But I think the cause of supporting parents when their children are struggling is still one that is underrepresented, undersupported and underserved. Oh, Suzanne, what a story. I mean, you just can't ever imagine something like that happening to your child, can you? And I just, 
can't imagine what was going through your mind at that moment. What signs would you say parents should look out for if they think that there might be something going on with their child's mental health? I think the key with mental health is that it is a continuum. So sometimes it's it's better than other times. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's good. So it really is a case of looking at your child's mental health over a longer period and just starting to notice and be aware of things. And for us as parents, because we're really busy and we've got jobs to do and we've got you know our own lives and we've got hopes for our children and all those ex- expectations that we have, that we can get too busy to, to notice. So we have to notice. And I would really urge parents to, if you're worried about something, is to not jump in, but just to observe. And we so often parent from fear. And actually, there is no need for fear because whatever parents are going through, I think with the support of charities like Parenting Mental Health, um, but also there's more peer support now in uh, the NHS for parents, that actually whatever you're facing, you can get through this. And that's a really strong message that I want to get across but what I'd urge parents to do is to just take those, uh, take that time not to jump in, not to judge, not to try and fix, which is the thing that we all try and do as parents. I think we want our children to not have to go through such painful experiences. But oftentimes by going through them, we end up somewhere wonderful and completely different as we have done. Um, but it's really about being open to seeing what's actually going on, what is really going on in your child and to recognise that all behaviour is communication. So if there's something different, make a note of it. Come back in a week and see whether that's still happening. And start to have those open conversations. Have them when you're not face-to-face. Do them in the car. Do them when you're doing a job together. And you know, create that judgment-free space for your child so that they can come to you and they can start to open up about this. Because it is hard to talk to your parents about your mental health and to not feel that in some way you're letting them down and you're not judging them. And that's what we as parents can do is create that really safe space, judgment-free for our children so that they can say, it's okay not to be okay and we're here for you, whatever's going on. I think that's really good advice because sometimes it can feel really difficult to reach them, can't it? And and sometimes by, as you say, trying to step in and fix it, you actually are putting more of a distance between you and pushing them further away. Definitely. And I think the other thing that we do when we, we when we try and fix, which comes from a place of love, is that we invalidate their experience. Now, mm. you know, when we were growing up, we didn't have phones in our bedrooms, unless we were in some American sitcom, but we certainly didn't have mobile phones and we didn't have social media and we didn't have all of those demands. So to try and diminish what they're going through is a really potentially damaging thing to do because we don't understand what it's like to be a young person in 2023. We don't understand what the demands are on them. And I think when we try and fix, what we do is we overlook their experience, we invalidate how they feel as an individual, and that leads them to believe that we don't understand, we don't get it. And and actually, at the extreme of that is that we don't care, when really we care very deeply. We just might not have the language to show that. So silence is a great bridge, I think, to understanding Um, and sitting with what's going on. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to shut it down. And whatever comes up will, it doesn't matter whether you ignore it or not, it will keep returning until it's either resolved or seen or supported. Do you think that phones and social media are a, a big part of this huge kind of, I know it's been described as a, a mental health epidemic. Is that why there's been a, a massive increase in mental health issues? Or is it perhaps just that we're more aware of them? 
I think there's a number of reasons why there is a, a huge mental health uh, crisis and epidemic. And I think social media and technology and that always on culture you know, that comes from it. So it's not just about social media and technology. It's about our expectations as human beings now. We expect that we can get hold of somebody day or night. We expect that we can have whatever we want delivered to our door within 20 minutes. So I think the sense of uh, our perceptions around what's important in our lives has changed. And I think the always on culture is really damaging. So when I was at school, if I was bullied at school and I went home, my bedroom was my safe space. And yet when Izzy was bullied, her phone was with her. So she could be uh, approached, communicated with, attacked, bullied. You know, the behaviours could perpetuate and continue when she was, you know, not with people. So there is, you know, there are fewer safe spaces for, for young people. But I also think us as parents are busier. You know, more of us are out at work. Our families live further away from us generally. I know that's a generalisation, but they do. And so that sense of the, the village isn't necessarily there as, as it was maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. So I think there's a lot of reasons why. And obviously, when we become more aware of things, then we see it more. But we also want to understand more, I think. And so the diagnoses that we are now given to everything, you know, can be really helpful in some ways to get access to care, but also can lead us to maybe think about our what's going on in, in us in different ways that maybe aren't quite as helpful. Yes. Yeah, it's that not being able to escape from it on your mobile phone. I know your experience that you described with Izzy about her absolute horror at the idea of you going into school. I think that's a scenario that a lot of families have faced with bullying. What do you think is the best way to deal with bullying? Well, I, I mean, it's it's obviously a really individual thing, but I, I always think that if you don't change anything, nothing will change. And you know, ultimately for a young person, they need to have a sense of emotional safety. So they need to be able to go into school and know that they're going to be emotionally safe. And so if you can't offer that, if a school can't offer that, and if you can't offer that, then their mental health will decline. They will start to become anxious. They will start to withdraw. They will start to change their behaviour. So for me, I think I wish in some ways that I'd gone in earlier. Um, I wish I'd addressed it sooner. And I think for me, it's about us as parents acknowledging what's going on and acknowledging what we're bringing to this. So for me, it was a case of, at the time, I mean, I'm a proper agitator now, but at the time, I didn't want to agitate. I didn't want to make waves. I wanted her to fit in. I wanted her to be okay. I thought it was a bit of a pain. I had, I did have, I mean, uh, you know, all respect to teachers, but at the time there was that sense of still, you know, still call a teacher Mrs. Whatever or Mr. Whatever. You know, there was this respect level and... I think the challenge is, is that schools have got such a big job to do. And so their job isn't to fix everything, um, but it's our job as parents really to, to, to surface the challenges and to advocate for our child. So I would go into the school with your child's permission, if you can get it, with your child's knowledge. And I'd also be clear with your child, what are the elements of it that are really distressing? There's lots of adjustments that schools can make. There's lots of things they can do in terms of you know, staged uh, entry times to school, um, safe spaces if uh, classes are overwhelming or at lunchtime. There's lots and lots of ways to deal with, deal with the response that your child was having. But equally, their bullying policies should be dealing with bullying. It's unacceptable. It should be stamped out and the behaviour should be dealt with appropriately. And at what point do you think parents should seek out professional help? 
Well, I, again, I mean, that's a very um, good, but or, or also a unique question to the individuals. I think as you start to see uh, changes that are over the longer term and distress, when your child is distressed, when they can no longer um, do the things that, that make them them, then I would definitely seek out professional support and help. And also, if you're looking at something like uh, autism, ADHD, neurodivergent uh, conditions, then obviously getting a diagnosis can be really helpful. But I also think that we have to be realistic. So a lot of the work that will be do that will be done with young people um, is, you know, there's there are huge waiting lists. So actually getting onto those waiting lists. So maybe it's actually the answer is as soon as you're concerned, you go and seek some help. But I think the challenge we face as parents is that the uh, the criteria for care keep increasing. So you might need to be really, uh, really, really in need before you can actually access it. So I think there's lots and lots of charities that work with young people and children and do brilliant work in that sense. So maybe look out for some charities first and then consider how you might get um, into CAMS. But I would always urge you to go and speak to your GP anyway, as the parent, even if your child can't go, go and have a chat with your GP and see what they can suggest as well. And I thought it was interesting what you were saying about the impact on the rest of the family. Um, I mean, the, I think that that's often forgotten, isn't it? It's overlooked because obviously you're in the, the middle of the crisis point. But how do you how do you help yourself as a parent and perhaps other siblings? Mm-hmm. It's so hard. And I think it's it's such a shame that so many parents are going through this. So many families are impacted on by poor mental health in a child because it does it does completely change the landscape of your whole family. And I think the key for parents is we always put our children first. And ironically, at a time of crisis, the thing that you have to do is counterintuitive to that, and that is to put yourself first. So you need to take care of yourself. You need to find ways that you can release the emotional stress that you're feeling, reduce the expectations and obligations on you, maybe speak to your employer, maybe look at some flexible working, um, but also maybe look at some therapeutic support for you, some emotional support. So in Parenting Mental Health, we run a number of drop-in sessions for parents to be able to come and talk with other people who get it. You know, they might not be in the same uh, location, they might not have the same experience, but they understand that fundamentally unique experience of your whole world being turned upside down. Because the person that you probably love the most in the world, you can't help, you can't fix. You just have to go through this with them. And so taking care of yourself is really a gift, not only to yourself, but it is and, and it gives you the energy to continue. But it also models really positive behaviour for your child as well. You talked a bit about um, the shame and stigma around mental health issues. Um, could you tell me a bit about a bit more about your experiences of that? And how do you think we can try to change mindsets on that? Mm, well, I think shame is just such a pervasive emotion it's hidden. It's hidden away. And that's how shame grows and develops. So we don't talk about these things because I think parenting became, or maybe it's become, I don't know, it's a bit of a a competitive sport. So if you've got a child who can't engage with the world, who spends their whole time in their bedroom, maybe gaming, maybe not washing, you know, they aren't really the kinds of things that you get those parenting medals for. Nobody's saying, oh, actually, I really want to be like you. And I think what happens is that we start to see our child's mental health as a direct correlation or a direct result of our behaviour, our parenting. 
And there are so many inputs into our child and so many inputs into their mental health. And yes, we could all do things differently and better. I mean, I'm the first one to hold my hands up and say, you know, all the horror stories that I, you know, created in my with my behaviours. But actually, when we feel ashamed of that, then we can translate that into our child. So I think there's this sort of symbiosis between our behaviour and our child's response to that behaviour. So when we feel shame, that can lead to our child thinking that we're disappointed in them, that we're ashamed of them. And actually, we can perpetuate that. So it's really important that we explore shame. And we know that great parents, I, I would say I'm a good parent. You know, but I'm a good parent whose daughter's attempted suicide several times. I'm a good parent whose daughter has self-harm scars. I'm a good parent whose daughter was almost hospitalised. You know, it's it's not a binary thing, parenting. Um, the point is, it's an infinite game. We're trying to be in this for the long term. And so I think the way that we can start to share our stories, that's why I'm very open to talking about any part of our experience, because the more I couldn't find anybody who would tell me I used to sit in the cams waiting room, trying to make eye contact with people, thinking if we could go through this together, that would just be so powerful for both of us. And I just couldn't find that. I, I couldn't find someone who wanted to say, yes, this is my experience. And, you know, I've been, I've been through this. So I think shame really does uh, die when we, as Brene Brown says, tell our stories in safe spaces. And that's why parenting mental health has become such a um, an important space for so many parents, because if you can tell your story, you can release it from you, then you can start to see that actually the whole experience of parenting and the whole experience of parenting a child with a mental health issue, which are very different, um, they're journeys. And we're on a journey here, self-discovery, self-understanding, and huge amounts of self-compassion as well, because we all do our best. We all try our best and we're not in control of everything. So yeah, I think self-compassion is probably the way forward. And to keep telling stories. Thank you for sharing about this. It's really important that we keep talking about this because it's not about blaming parents. It's not about guilting, you know, parents into thinking that they've done something wrong. It's about saying this is something that is happening because of the society we live in, because of a variety of reasons and inputs. And what we need to do is really support families. We don't need to shame them. We don't need to blame them. We need to support them. And then by that, by doing that, they can then support their child better. I think that's so empowering, that message. I'm a good mom and this has happened to my child. It's, as you say, it's not binary. It's just, it's just something that happens and why should we not talk about it? So Izzy's 21 now. How is she, how's she doing? And is she involved in the charity? She is doing great. Uh, Izzy was out of school for two years, so she ended up taking a couple of uh, GCSEs, that was all she took because she basically was healing, lying in bed, gaming, doing a whole load of other things, loads of skills that she gained over those two years that you couldn't get a degree in or a GCSE in or anything. Um, but then she decided that she wanted to go to college. So she went to college, um, she got 100% attendance and the highest grades and she got uh, unconditional offers for uni and last year she graduated. So she's done... Amazing. So I think if any parents are listening and their children aren't in school or they're struggling to get them into school, there are other ways of educating yourself and there are other routes into higher education. And she's also actually did a, an arts degree, which is something that she would never have done if she'd have stayed in the same school. 
Um, but yeah, she's done some videos for and sessions for the charity. But really, actually, the most important thing I think she's done is she actually illustrated my book. So that was really nice for part of her story and my story and the partnering, not parenting approach, which is how I changed my behaviour to support her. You know, she really kind of, um, I suppose she cemented that with um, putting her mark on on the book. I wanted to ask you about that. What What is partnering, not parenting? How, how does that work? So when Izzy was first ill, even though she got great care, a lot of the things I was told to do just uh, made her feel that I didn't get what she was going through. And our communication was breaking down and I felt like I was really, really losing her. And so I realised one day that if I keep doing this, then I'm just going to reinforce the message that she's wrong, that her voice isn't credible, it has no place, and that I'm ignoring her experience. And so I decided that I would change my behaviour and change my communication. And so Partnering Not Parenting came out of a need in me to connect with Izzy in her darkest sort of times. And so there's three parts to Partnering Not Parenting. It's really an approach that you can use. It's a choice, really, to change your parenting. Um, But it's also um, something that you can use in the moment And the three parts are step down, stand aside and travel together. So you need to step down from your own emotions, which is a really big thing for a lot of our parents. Also, your judgment, your own experience and your authority. You don't know what's going on in your child's head. You aren't the all seeing, all knowing kind of uh, part of their life. And so this experience really demands that you take a different approach. And we see phenomenal changes in relationships, in parents and children, when the parents start to change their behaviour. So partnering, not parenting is all about the parent. It's all about our behaviour and our communication style. Nothing to do with the child, but we see huge, immense changes when parents do start to parent differently. So is that an actual programme that people can take part in as part of the charity? Yes. So we run um, a Partnering Not Parenting course. It's an eight-week course and you get 12 months access to it because it's quite hardcore and quite challenging in lots of ways. Because if you are already struggling, you know, to start to reflect and change is, you know, it's really, really challenging. So we run it over eight weeks and you get 12 months access for it. And each time we run the course, which is about five times a year, we've just started one. There's another one running in June. We also run scholarships. So we, um, the course is £150 for the 12 months access, but we also run a number of scholarships so that parents can access it um, for whatever reason, um, that they need to. And uh, they get that 12 month support from a community, they get resources and they get live coaching sessions as well. And what su- other support can people get through your network? Because it started off with a Facebook page, didn't it? Was it was it a private, a private group? Yes. So I started the private group in 2016. I remember in 2017 when I got 300 people in there and just feeling like that was the most phenomenal feeling in the world, 300 families that we were supporting. And um, we now support 37,000 parents. Wow. And so, and I think that's just the tip of the iceberg, really. So we are um, a charity, obviously. We have a community, a peer support community that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We take great pride in ensuring that we uh, make it only parents and only parents that meet our criteria, that they have a child with a mental health issue, um, where they can get support, they can ask for advice. And we have a whole number of uh, subgroups as well to deal with really specific 
uh, challenges, maybe around inpatient or if you have a child who is LGBTQ. Um, but we also do a number of programs, Partnering Not Parenting. We have free Partnering Not Parenting bite-sized videos on our website. And we also run Chat and Connect sessions, which are drop-in sessions where parents can come in a space on Zoom. So it doesn't matter where you are or what time of day or night it is. Uh, but a trained facilitator who's got lived experience and has been trained to facilitate the group will listen and give you a hug, a virtual hug, and uh, I think just reduce that isolation and hopefully over time reduce that shame as well. That's key really, isn't it? Because I guess it's a very, as you've mentioned before, a very lonely place to be and you yeah. do feel very isolated. Absolutely. So having yeah. that number of people together in a group is just phenomenal. It is. And I think for a lot of people, we have a lot of parents who will not actually post at all. They'll come in and we call them our listeners. They they listen to what's going on. They learn from other people's experiences. You know, so much. It's almost like a new language when your child becomes um, unwell with their mental health. So you might have to deal with EHCPs with school. You might have attendance meetings and educational welfare officers and educational psychologists to deal with. And then you've also got the medical side of it. Plus, you might have to deal with your employer. Plus, your relationship might be breaking down. Your friends and family might be judging you. So many elements of this can really lead... Well, for me, they led. there was only one path and that path led to I am to blame. And so what parenting mental health aims to do is to take away that sense of blame. There is no guilt. There is no judgment when you come and join us because we understand how hard it is and how when your child is unwell, it really does feed into every area of your life as a parent. And so we aim to give the support and understanding and the signposting and lots and lots of ways that parents can start to understand this is a, an adversity, it is a challenge, but there are ways out of it. And lots of the bonds that we see built in the community are just so wonderful to see. We actually had a, we have a, we have a, 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 a marriage uh, from the community as well. So, you know, these, really? this experience really does you know, connect people. So, um, yes, it's wonderful to see. And out of such deep adversity, to see the compassion and the kindness and also the hope, I think. It's not all doom and gloom. There's lots and lots of hope in parenting mental health. Um, yes. So that's great as well. We run something on Brummy Mummies, which we call Parent Request, and parents can come to us with questions to put to the wider group. And um, and that same thing happens there that so many people go, gosh, I'm so glad to read this today. I thought I was the only person going through this. And that's always been my aim with Brummy Mummies, that, that kind of feeling that we're all in this together. Yeah, I love that. It's so important, isn't it? Because I, there's a great quote and I can't remember it and I won't um, misquote it. But basically it is what you too, I thought I was the only one. And mm. it's that sense of uh, reducing that isolation just changes everything. It gives you more hope. It gives you a sense of positivity. And I think so many of the success stories, Izzy's included, um, give real hope to parents who are sitting where I was in 2015, thinking, how on earth did I get here? And how on earth am I going to get out? What have been some of the success stories that you've come across, obviously, without identifying anybody? Of course. I mean, I think the there are lots of success stories of young people like Izzy who end up attempting suicide, who self-harm, who can't access school, who, you know, whose lives really feel like they're on hold. You know, young people who end up in inpatient units and, you know, one in particular 
uh, thinking of um, uh, somebody who's been in our community for a long time and her daughter was recently discharged after, I think, three years in an inpatient unit. But to see the kind of growth in that young person and also in her mum is just you know, phenomenal to see. And I think that's the key for me is that there are so many lessons from this experience. So uh, if we are open to hearing them and taking them on board... Uh, and it does take time. And I think that's the key is that you don't come into this quickly. I think Izzy probably was struggling for about 18 months before I recognised. And so you don't come into it quickly and you don't go out of it quickly. But seeing those mm. success stories is just, yeah, it's always really, really hopeful. Yes. I know you talk about tooling up. What are some of the tools that parents and families can equip themselves with in these situations? I think we talked a little bit about self-care and I think it sounds like it's all avocados and bubble baths and I don't mean it like that, but I mean fundamentally taking care of your emotional well-being and your physical health so that you're in a position where you're strong enough to cope with whatever you're, you're facing. Because this is a battle. You know, you don't want to battle your child, but you are battling an illness in many cases. Um, and if you're not battling an illness, um, you're battling school and getting access to care and, you know, how you're going to juggle everything. So I think self-care is one of the key um, skills that parents really need. But some of the things we go through in the Partnering Not Parenting course are how we can deal with acceptance. How can we accept what we're, what's going on so that it can free us to start to communicate better? So communication skills are something that I think most of us aren't actually taught as parents. So when we come to find our child struggling, you know, our fixer tendencies can overcome our ability to communicate well, to listen well, and to, to sit with what's going on. And I think sitting with the distress is a key skill for life. So um, there's lots and lots of things that parents have to deal with. You know, they have to deal with their grief as well. They have to deal with their guilt. So I think the, the key skills around communication are really important. I think there's a huge amount of, I mean, we have got so many skilled parents now in legislation and EHCPs and all the things that they probably didn't ever think they needed to know. Um, so I think there's, a, there's a, a case for the emotional tools that we need as a parent to be able to deal with this. And then there's the practical ones. You know, how do you deal with your employer? How do you ask for an EHCP? How do you get your child the support that they need? I guess sometimes it must be really tricky as well when parents don't see the situation in the same way because they bring obviously their own experience to it. I guess sometimes mums and dads can differ in the way that they might want to deal with a situation like this. And mm, that can lead to arguments and all kinds of things, can't it? We see that a lot of the challenges come in how we come to this experience so my husband and I are very different in our I'm incredibly emotional and he would say he's very pragmatic and logical and his response to Izzy's um, uh, attempted suicide was to try and fix it was to go into fixer mode right what can I do now to change this I need to make some change whereas I was much more uh, reflective about my role in it, what I'd done, what I'd done wrong, which was loads. There's a whole podcast on what I did wrong. There was just tons of it. But then how can I help her? And I think the what, what happened was we both were coming at it from a position of love and fear. And we both wanted the very best for her. 
but we weren't necessarily communicating that in the same way. So I think there's a disconnect generally in the way that we communicate. What we say and what we do might not be aligned with what our what how our partner sees positive or supportive behaviour. And so again, you know, we see a lot of um, partner uh, partnerships break down. We see a lot of families break down. But I think, you know, if we can break through how we feel we should behave in this, if we can be open and honest and vulnerable to how it makes us feel, then, and that was some of the ways that my husband and I connected, which was to say, you know, for him finally to say this, uh, you know, I'm feeling really bad about this. I don't, I can't fix this. And that's what I tend to do in my life. And for me to say, that's okay, we'll go through this together. How would you say that, Everything that's happened since 2014 has changed your outlook on life? Well, (laughs) that's a really good question. I've, before Izzy got ill, I had been through quite a lot of trauma in my early life anyway. And I think I always felt like life was something that um, I should do my best at, I should try, but I wasn't necessarily sure that I would get what I wanted out of it. And I think when Izzy got ill, something shifted in me and I realised how much power I had. I had had huge power as a parent, um, but I also had huge personal power if I decided that I was going to lean into it. And so since 2015, when she got really ill, I think what I've done is I've, I've decided to run towards adversity. So run towards challenge, run towards the tough stuff, And not be afraid of what my feelings are, not be afraid of what my emotions are around it. Because in there is your strength, in there is your power. And even though this is really, really hard to live through and it changes you as a person, it absolutely does. There is such gold in knowing I'm, you know, I, I just think now there's nothing that you could do or say or bring to me. Not that I would be able to change it or make it better necessarily but I would be able to get through it and I think what this has done is given me an unbreakable sense of uh, agency over my life which is it's fine whatever happens it's okay we'll get through. Yes that's and that's really powerful isn't it because then it kind of anything that comes your way you think well yeah I can I can deal with this. Definitely. Gone Bring it on. The worst. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a series of questions that we ask all of our guests. So I'd like to ask them of you, if that's okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, the first one is, what would be the two things you would say to your 18-year-old self if you had the chance? Well, I think I've probably just said one of them, which is you are powerful and you yes. will get through this. Um, and I think the other thing is, is uh, you don't have to run away. I... I I ran away from a lot of my childhood trauma. You don't have to run away. Um, so that's my other one, I think. That was three, I think, wasn't it? Sorry, Zoe. That, I think no, that was three. that's good. The more, the better. <laughs> so <laughs> what would be, what are the three things that you love to do each day? What gives you a great start, end, routine to the day? So uh, every day I go for a walk and I've been sporadic. In lockdown, I know people baked sourdough and walked for miles and I did none of it. I was stuck behind a laptop working and I was very happy to do that. And I've been trying to find ways that I could build in walking to my 
my life just because I love nature. I love being in nature. It really does enrich me. Um, but I kind of needed a reason to do it. So every day I go and do what I call the daily ramble. So it's a daily podcast that I do, which is literally me talking about whatever's in my head at that time, unedited, unscripted. But what it's done is we're on day 77, I think now. And what it's wow. done is it's got me out. It's got me out every day, rain or shine. And it's funny, you know, because actually what it's proven to me is there's only been one rainy day in those last 77 when I've gone out. There's been times, obviously, every, well, many days it's rained. But I think just that sense of connection to some of the parents in parenting mental health that listen to it and that sense of uh, commitment to myself and making that commitment to myself has been really tough. But that's been a, a great way. And I think if you can combine two things, one you love and one you think you've got to do, then that often helps you to make that commitment. I also have a tree that is outside my kitchen window that I have a cup of tea and in the morning feed the cat, have a cup of tea and look out at the tree. And the tree is kind of my grounding for the day. So what do I want to do today? What do I want to feel today? What do I want to be today? So set an intention, have a cup of tea and there we go. And then I think probably that's that's the two I've got. And then the only other one is serve, is every single day I get up and I think, how can I serve our community? How can I serve parents? And that's really important for me. Yeah, that's really, that's really good. So what would be the one piece of advice that you would give to a parent whose child is going through a mental health crisis? You can't fix this and that's okay. So really take care of yourself and hold on to hope, not hopes. And what I mean by that is, Every time that we think our child is coming out of this and everything's okay and we put an obligation on them and we have to, as, as parents, take the longer term view. We have to see beyond now, beyond next week, beyond the GCSEs, the prom, whatever, the summer holidays. We have to look and see that this is an infinite game. We're, tr we're just playing this game to keep playing. We're trying to help our child through these really challenging times. I'd say take care of yourself. Um, look after you get support, come and speak to us in parenting mental health. We, we want to support you. And I'll also say you will get through this. So whatever you're facing now, it will change because that is the only certainty that we have. Change is our only certainty. Um, but if it is hard today, if you are struggling, reach out for some help, but also just one day, one hour, one minute at a time. There were times when I didn't know how I would keep Izzy alive that day. And all I had was that moment. So all I would focus on was, I mean, literally, I would be, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. I'm just focusing on this moment. That's all I've got. Because the feelings and the emotions were so overwhelming, I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't have PMH, parenting mental health. I, I didn't have somewhere I could go. But I think, you know, recognising the impact on you getting the support, going and finding people who get what you're going through and keeping that hope alive, not hopes. Don't hope for them to do something tomorrow and think it'll all be over. Keep that hope alive. The child has a bright and brilliant future and you are absolutely integral to that. So take care of yourself, find the support. You can't fix this and that's okay. That's actually a really good thing that you can't fix this. That takes the pressure off you in some ways. And you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Come and see us in Parenting Mental Health. Everybody is welcome. Warm welcome for all. No judgment. So tell us, how can people get involved? 
Okay, so Parenting Mental Health has a website, parentingmentalhealth.org. And on there, you'll find all the details of our Partnering Not Parenting course, uh, my book, Never Let Go, and the community. And there's an events page on there as well. So we've got things for our Chat and Connect sessions, when the next partnering courses are, that sort of thing. But really, the website is a great space to go to. It's got lots of videos on the Skill tab. Uh, There's lots of Partnering Not Parenting bite-sized videos you can have a little look at. And if you want to join the community, please answer the questions. We've got a brilliant team of volunteers who keep the space safe. So they won't let you in if you don't answer the questions. Um, But when you come in, hopefully it might feel a little bit daunting, but I hope that you'll learn. I hope that you'll feel safe and hope that we can support you through whatever you're facing. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you, Suzanne. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's so important to share these stories and your message is really empowering. So I wish you and Izzy all the best in the future. Thank you so much, Zoe. You can read more about Suzanne on the Birmingham Live website and on the Brummy Mummies Facebook page. And you can find out more about her charity via her website, parentingmentalhealth.org. Brummy Mummies is a laudable production, which you can download or stream on all major podcasting platforms, including Spotify and Apple. Please share this episode with anyone who may find it useful. You might also like to listen to our episodes on the importance of self-care with yoga teacher Kate Ford, mindfulness with Sophie Rogers, and refinding your joy after hard times with Georgie Mosley and Sinead Soft. Be sure to follow Brummy Mummies on social media and sign up to our free newsletter. See you next time and take care.